Speech Pitch by Iska Sack. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Speech Pitch. In case you're new to our podcast, let me introduce myself. I am Caterina Botalho. And I am Francisco Teixeira, and we will be your hosts for this episode. We're very excited to bring you a new episode. This time, we have here with us Sri Narayanan. Welcome, Sri, and thank you so much for accepting our invitation and taking the time to chat with us. So delighted to be with you all. Thank you so much for joining us today, Sri. So, Sri, uh, you're a professor of electrical and computer engineering, computer science, linguistics, psychology and neuroscience, pediatric, otolaryngology, head and neck surgery at the University of Southern California. You're also the co-founder of two companies, Listen and Behavioral Signals. And as if this was not enough, all of us, all of the members of the team that uh, is producing Speech Pitch, who work in very different subfields of speech, like privacy, health, children's speech and prosody, acknowledge that you have made significant contributions to their fields, not to mention all the other fields that you have worked on. With all of this in mind, what we would like to start by asking you is, how did this come about? And how would you describe your path, the path you took to reach this point in your career? Well, thank you for that. <laughs> It's kind of a little embarrassing when you put it that way. Uh, so uh, I, I, I would say, you know, I, I've been fortunate to have been, you know, uh, have had the opportunities to be in places with right mentors and right collaborators over uh, these last almost three decades of uh, my uh, work and involvement in, in what is core at, at core speech processing. Uh, various aspects of understanding people through how they communicate using speech, spoken language, interaction, other sort of modalities, both sort of in the service of you know, understanding the human condition, you know, how people uh, produce and process uh, uh, speech and language, how the various aspects of behavior, including affective behavior, how people express, perceive, and what happens when some of these things you know, don't work out you know, because of some sort of you know, uh, condition change, context changes, including due to health uh, status differences. So as a result, right, because of this core interest of what is human-centered, uh, the connections are naturally you know, wide and, you know, and broad, you know, whether it is uh, thinking about theoretical aspects in linguistics or psychology or more translational questions in health and medicine. So it naturally kind of fit in. And as I said, with the right kind of connections and people, I was sort of now constantly had the opportunity to learn and you know, try to contribute. And of course, I should underscore, right, alongside this collaborators, one of the big part of my collaborators have been, you know, and continue to be, are the students that I've had the just honor of uh, working with over the years. And so, and so all these kinds of titles and so on, right, are just sort of reflective of what other people have helped contribute. And I just go along for the ride. So as you say, you have many different collaborations and work in a multidisciplinary research, right, with different people. But for us as PhD students, we often start with very specialized topics, right? And I guess that's normal. But how do we evolve from this to being able to do some multidisciplinary research? How do you foster these collaborations and, and uh, with researchers from different disciplines? That's a very good question. Uh, it's an ongoing process, I feel, right? Because a lot of it, of course, is driven by you know uh, one's own uh, curiosity and interest, right? Uh, I always uh, think that like uh, um, knowledge and skills can be acquired, right? Uh, once we kind of are interested and passionate about a particular question. For example, I was always interested in sort of you know a question of variability, you know, as children you know uh, uh, develop. Right. Uh, originally, when I was thinking about it, I, it didn't even, you know, uh, cross my mind at that point. Uh, things beyond just, you know, development that is uh, biological, that their children are growing physically, socially, and so on. And then a lot of the other sort of perturbations to this also came into play. What about, like, when a difference is neurodiversity, for example? Uh, what about learning differences, etc.? And so each of that kind of, you know, uh, poses. Uh, interesting angles and questions, and then, you know, uh, we can start learning and, and listening to experts and other colleagues and trying to come up with a common understanding of these, uh, these questions of interest and together come up with solutions. So one of the things I uh, 
I feel that it's been very important is to listen and to listen sort of what are sort of the key questions or uh, that colleagues and perspectives that you know people uh, offer to the same problem and these kinds of multifaceted perspective together right adds up to something that's greater than sort of these individual things that each of us may come up with and that that has been very joyful i think you know and, and uh, of course uh, it, it does have a lot of challenges right because you know we're always out of our comfort zone you know, because uh, it's just impossible i feel i know i and i feel like presumptuous if you even think about oh we have knowledge in all these various aspects you know at, at the level of depth but in a way that we can think about how to sort of you know uh, both acquire and use and together create uh, uh, this knowledge apply this knowledge right in, in, in the service of answering some question of scientific interest or as engineers right uh, we also want to take some of these ideas, scientific ideas to make into useful uh, uh, applications or outcomes, right? whether it's tools or systems and so on to help people. And so I think that aspect also is very helpful to be able to you know, uh, uh, learn, think, and be open-minded and also sort of you know, uh, understand that you know, we may be wrong and often we are and correct ourselves. Do you think there are any core lessons that you have learned from working with people of different disciplines? Yeah, so I, I well, uh, from each of the fields, right, each field has its own sort of, you know, way it has evolved and their own methods and approaches, right? And that's been enriching, right? They have different uh, levels of rigor, uh, for example, how uh, they read and cite literature, for example, how methodological experimental design, for example, you know, each of the fields emphasizes, or at least, you know, the, the interaction that I've had, and you know it's a learning experience, and um, uh, above and beyond, right? The knowledge per se comes from right. So people, like for example, speech and language is of is of interest across fields, right? You know, uh, linguists are interested in aspects about you know the theoretical aspects about how, for example, sounds are uh, organized in the world's languages, and you know the mental representations of those uh, structural aspects of it, you know, uh, and so on. Uh, in psychology, people are very interested in, you know, the use of speech and language, you know, that uh, tells us something about you know, our internal sort of, you know, states and traits and how, you know, what happens if something is disrupted and, and, and so on. So we learn uh, these various perspectives, the theoretical foundations that, you know, we always are on the shoulders of others, right, like scholars before us, scientists before us. And, you know, each field, you know, provides us that kind of uh, an opportunity and none, uh, you know, our own sort of, you know, uh, uh, field of speech communication sort of exemplifies this connection, right? It's almost access to this nucleus that connects all these various uh, fields together in a beautiful way. And, and that's why, you know, for me, uh, ISTA and Interspeech are like most favorite places because, you know, this really is interdisciplinary. You look at the conference, you see everything from, you know, linguistics and paralinguistics to sort of, you know, technological application and, you know, uh, uh, and, and, and special domains, everything is covered. There's this dialogue that happens and that's kind of enriching, right? Uh, and so. Is it ever hard to establish good communication? Because you, you mentioned that people from different uh, disciplines are sometimes used to different criteria or different methods. Right, absolutely. I think that's a, that's a very good question, right? How do we communicate about communication? <laughs> like in any uh, human interaction, the relationship building, right? It takes time. Uh, sort of, uh, I personally, these are things that I kind of feel that have been uh, helpful for me. First is uh, mutual respect for sort of uh, the fields and the way people pose and ask questions that is, the, uh, uh, and the methods that they have and, and, and see sort of the, uh, the value and sort of, you know, uh, what it brings. Uh, likewise, ours also being able to explain and find these common ground. And then together we can say, well, okay, what are the open questions and how can we do it together? I think that has been a big part of this collaborative approach uh, uh, to both at the intellectual level and the interpersonal level, I think, you know, is important. And open communication and transparency is like, it's also sort of you know, uh, critical. So um, we're talking about uh, multidisciplinary research and 
Um, you've been working on the intersection of arts and science, right? We saw, we saw some papers on understanding the emotions evoked by artworks and also uh, works on the analysis of portrayal of movie characters. So can you tell us a bit about these works? Uh, where did these ideas come from? Sure. So uh, the general interest, as I said, in, in of, of mine and, and, uh, and uh, of my lab, has been trying to sort of understand the human sort of, you know, condition, you know, their uh, interaction with one another in the world and, and applications that, that relate to that, right? To say, how can we build, use technologies to support and enhance human experiences? So arts, you know, media arts in general has been a big part of that. Right? Music uh, uh, has been a very close sort of, you know, uh, realm for, Many people that are interested in speech and audio, for example, and I'm not uh, uh, different, any different from that. I'm, you know, I'm a musician myself, and I've always been interested in sort of, you know, understanding music, both sort of, um, for example, the closest one can think about is song production, just like speech production. How do people use their vocal instrument to produce uh, sounds that we perceive as sort of uh, music that has affective, you know, uh, creates affective sort of uh, uh, experiences in the listeners um, and different kinds of music, right? So we've studied like both the physics of sort of, uh, for example, like uh, opera singing, you know, beatboxing and uh, art forms through sort of the scientific eye, bringing methodologies that you kind of been using in you know, studying speech and, and, and so on. So that's one angle. The other is like, you know, we see with this sort of, you know, uh, even the current resurgence of signal processing, machine learning and so on, uh, many art forms can be viewed and understood. Okay, uh, first of all, from a uh, content analysis perspective, you know what is that a, a creator, right? Uh, whether it is uh, a lyrics of a song or um, other music forms, right, can be sort of understood from using these tools, right? So that's another angle we produce. Uh, how can we understand, for example, structural aspects, just like you know, we use linguistic theory, like, you know, about phonology and syntax studying speech, we can use music theory, right? Like, and uh, to look at like music forms, that's another angle of applying machine learning to understand music. Of course, the other side of it is how people experience music, right? Like, of course, we know that music has this impact on us, both that we feel and that, you know, our, our body reacts to, right? Physiologically, neurally, but also, you know, behaviorally, you know, we bop our heads, but we, we listen to it again, we pay for it. So understanding, you know, these uh, affective experiences to music listening is also some uh, angle. So that's one part of the art, like, you know, music sort of how we create and uh, process and perceive music has been some uh, direction that we've been working in our lab. The other is sort of, you know, uh, looking at media, uh, uh, sort of uh, broader media forms like, you know, film and television and streaming and all that stuff. And to understand, you know, there, again, these multimodal uh, signal processing machine learning of, you know, uh, speech and dialogue, uh, the visual scenes, who's there, uh, what are they doing, how are they portrayed? So that kind of we got interested in from an angle of saying, okay, uh, what used to be just yet another sort of, you know, domain where we can, you know, study, you know, speaker diarization and, uh, you know, uh, dialogue interactions and so on. But what uh, we said, well, there's lots of things in the art and how it's created and portrayed uh, may have sort of, you know, questions about uh, inclusive representations uh, or disparities there. So one of the things that, you know, uh, with some collaborators in Hollywood, uh, we uh, started asking was, uh, it seems like anecdotally that, you know, uh, women, for example, are seen and heard uh, less than men, right? Uh, in film and television, that has impact, right? How people are portrayed, you know, it's not be beyond presence, also stereotyping and other kinds of aspects happen uh, for women and other uh, 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 sort of uh, underrepresented uh, uh, parts of our society. So some of the results we showed that, like, for example, women, you know, are only seen and heard about a third of the time, right? Uh, but the movies that they are leading in make as much or more money. So it's not a business proposition. So diversity is important. We've also shown that similar things with ads, ad advertisements. Uh, we show, you know, applied this with uh, in collaboration with the United Nations um, in their meetings that you know we could actually see participation of you know uh, delegates that are uh, women from other countries. How much 
you know, floor time do they get and are they, you know, given opportunities? Because you, know, you have to be able to participate to be heard, right? And, and how does it shape, you know, other kinds of policies and, and so on and so forth. So that's another art form involvement. And the final one that you talked about, again, relates to affective experience. You know, recently, you know, we've been looking at just you know, visual art and see what impact it has on people. Because, you know, we, you know, all these things, right, like, you know, modulate and mediate our, our affective experiences, right? When you look at a piece of art, it has some impact on it. So we wanted to understand how can we relate a given piece of art and how it is sort of, you know, uh, what impact it has on an individual or group of people. And so the recent work was focused on that. In general, this is also this kind of you know, understanding human uh, response to media experiences is very useful in, in clinical domains as well, right? How people process and, uh, um, uh, and respond to affective stimuli is something of much interest, say, in domains uh, where, like in mental health and you know, in behavioral health, for example, children with uh, 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 on the autism spectrum disorder have, you know, have different uh, ways in which they process emotional sort of uh, stimuli, right? Likewise, people like sort of you know with other neurological disorders have different ways that they process speech, language, music, and so on. So this kind of you know, provides also additional sort of layers of uh, um, interesting possibilities the study of arts beyond just being fun so basically all of this work that you're talking about has a, a lot of social impact right and it's not only in this work but you also have worked on um, issues like child speech recognition and uh, also technologies for training and assessing psychosocial interventions so is this something that you have been consciously more or less pursuing through your career? And what is your motivation behind this? Oh, absolutely. Thank you for that question. So we've always been sort of interested in doing sort of you know, things that have some societal meaning and value. Uh, that's always been my passion. And in fact, one of the, uh, I worked in industry before coming back to academia as a, a professor. Even there, like my work on children, I right, started at, at Bell Labs, and I wanted to see how can we develop technologies that can help, for example, a segment of our society that uh, doesn't speak or read or do things like, say, grown-ups, right? Like, you know, for, for learning, for example, uh, uh, learning to read. And then this kind of connections between uh, that. Uh, what I wanted to work on on the technology front and what it could potentially impact either near term or at least perhaps longer term has always been there. So in, in, when I was in the university, this became, you know, the, the scope of what I could do uh, became broader, the possibilities because of all the interdisciplinary connections I, we talked about earlier. And so societal connections became sort of an important part of that. And because our sort of you know that the study of speech and spoken communication right is like uh, so rich uh, and inherently so uh, diverse right because each of us produces and you know and processes uh, uh, for example speech in very unique ways even though we speak the same language our context and who we are and you know and all the uh, various factors come into the play and come into play in how we communicate right so both understanding this sort of uh, rich diversity and the variability and trying to see how we can translate that into experiences that are in tune in, in support of uh, individuals and groups, right, has been sort of a very interesting and challenging technical problem, but has very important sort of applications. So for example, right, if we can understand, we know as children develop, you know, their, their speech patterns change, not only, you know, how they sound, but also the the words they sort of start using, the linguistic structure, the use of nonverbal cues, and, and so on. On top of it, if there are differences in this developmental trajectory because of, say, for example, a neurocognitive condition such as autism, then that adds another dimension of variability. So if we were to build uh, technologies and tools both to shine light on these differences and then use it to see how we can build robust and inclusive technologies, 
right? It provides these two sides of coin. And that has always been sort of very satisfying and fulfilling, you know, when we think about like, you know, the, the difference. So, so the, the domain of children is like very good example of that and something that we continue to work uh, even today because these are tough problems. And, you know, we, while the community we have made advances, we're still a long ways to go. Uh, exactly. Uh, because of that, what do you feel are still the biggest challenges that um, on this type of research? Absolutely. I'll start with like, no, since we're talking about uh, speech and speech processing, right? Uh, even five years, 10 years ago, right? We didn't uh, imagine the sort of this ubiquitous prevalence of uh, some of the speech technologies uh, like, you know, uh, on mobile devices, in the cars, at home, and so on, right? Uh, that that uh, the acquisition of audio, the processing of audio, the, uh, you know, both the, the signal and then the interpretation of this to, you know, make a lot of very useful applications, right? To, for information access, for interaction. But now imagine, right? A signal like speech carries so much rich information about not only so your intent, but, your affective state, who you are, the language you speak, you know, your, um, your health status. So, and, and all this kind of, you know, provides opportunities to see how we can support people in what they want, right? Now, I'll come back to that point. And so that opens up a lot of very interesting uh, uh, potential applications globally, worldwide, right? Everyone around the world, uh, you know, uses speech and language. And so we can think about like, you know, uh, applications in learning and uh, education at scale that we didn't imagine before, I think, you know, in health, right? Because speech and spoken language provide sort of in an uh, oh, inverse problem way insights into sort of uh, underlying neurocognitive state differences. And, you know, and in fact, that's what people use, right? Look at language differences across the lifespan, whether it is a child or in dementia you know, use or other health conditions like depression and so on. And so how can we really make this again available across, you know, uh, languages and cultures and, you know, make sure speech-based tools, building upon all these exciting advances that, you know, that's happening, you know, in all these industry and in academia. And so those two areas really uh, excite me, as particularly with a global view, right? Like, you know, because you know, across languages, you know, but as I said, right, while, uh, you know, a topic that some of you uh, are very uh, intimate with, this is also sort of, you know, there's also a lot of very interesting ethical uh, uh, other questions uh, that come, come about, right? That we can gain some insight about a particular person's emotional state or their, some aspect of their uh, identity, perceived identity, right? Whether it's age, gender, whatever it is, who, what, what should we do, right? Uh, how do we uh, protect uh, 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 what people want, you know? Uh, how do we assure sort of, you know, uh, privacy and build trust in using the speech processing and, you know, speech communication technologies. How do we protect against malicious sort of, you know, activities, right? Like, you know, how people can uh, use and abuse uh, uh, these kinds of technology. So they open up, these opportunities also open up more opportunities to kind of, you know, that as sort of uh, scientists and technologists, we are able to provide for our community and, you know, that again, then that underscores, okay, more PhD theses need to be written, <laughs> more, more sort of, you know, deeper research needs to be done and tested and so on. So that keeps our field, uh, I, I think, you know, very vibrant and, you know, and, and, and at the same time contributing, you know, as we move along to the global community. So sometimes it's not easy to, to move from, from pure research to applications that can be deployed in real-world scenarios, right? Um, especially maybe in these areas that have large social impact or deal with more delicate matters. Do you, do you relate to this or do you feel that your research has had a real-world impact? In small ways, I would uh, hope so. Uh, uh, I'm striving for that. And like every researcher, right? Like, you know, no. So uh, as sort of just academic researchers, one way we do is like you know, by sharing our uh, work in, you know, in a timely fashion through our publications and but also through our sort of, you know, as much as possible, the data and tools that we create so that, you know, that can help build. 
The other is to see, you know, to take it to the next step, right? So many, you know, since uh, I'm talking to the students uh, uh, activity uh, council, like so, so many of our students are also now have entrepreneurial ambitions and interests, right? So another way of creating impact is to take core research ideas and taking it into, that's another way of making impact for the society, right? There's, uh, uh, it's exciting actually to uh, start up or contribute to that uh, that way and, and, and participate. That's another way. So our lab has done a little bit now and through my students, you know, they've had like they've written patents and, you know, they've been part of doing this. For example, the one recent patent is called Spellcheck for Bias. It's based on uh, natural language processing analyzing, say, movie scripts and books to look for sort of, you know, uh, characters and stories and how characters are portrayed, you know, and uh, how much and stereotyping. So just as, just like a spell check tool we have, right, whether we're spelling right, it just looks for these dimensions of potential biases that may be in documents. So this is just an example. So, uh, entre- no, timely publication and sharing entrepreneurial aspects and then, of course, you know, working with and going, taking ideas to sort of industries is like a big part of our community, right? A lot of uh, wonderful things are happening. After all, many of uh, the PhDs from uh, uh, such as yourself are not, not only in, uh, going to academia, but also going to industry or being both, right? These days that happens in our community a lot. And so that's another way of making big impact. And of course, you know, participating in national sort of you know, projects and laboratories. And so different ways, and it takes time, Katrina, uh, that's so true, right? This is not something we say, well, I have an idea, immediately it goes, it, it takes a lot of time, uh, frustration, challenges. Off a while, it's kind of, you know, uh, somewhat painful sometimes. That's a natural course of sort of, you know, progression of ideas to get tested and, you know, and, and truly sort of make an impact at scale. But the possibility of uh, this interconnected world makes it sort of, you know, uh, some of this expedited, right? That we, we can think about, like, you know, because, because of this network connection, because of phones close to people, right? Because since we are very people-centric in, in our field, having connection to people is important, whether it's through Zoom or to see we are, you know, time zones away, but able to have a conversation. Um, imagine, like, you know, speech technologies, uh, that come in and uh, you know, support you know, specific experiences because a lot of the part of the world there you know they don't even have a written form of the language they're not you know a lot of uh, literacy challenges uh, so a lot of possibilities to make an impact with the technologies that each of you are working on that's so encouraging <laughs> i mean it's hard but there's a lot of room for for opportunities and absolutely yeah. Absolutely. But, but you've made, uh, you've created two companies, right? So tell us about that. How, how did you decide to, to create or co-found these companies? What pushed you, pushed you forward? Yeah, so I'm uh, happy to share my uh, the experience. And so the first company, the Behavioral Signals, uh, came out of our work in, you know, effective computing and, you know, uh, motion. So we were interested in, you know, not just what people are saying, but how they are saying it was the uh, an idea and you know we worked a lot on some of the foundational uh, methods right uh, how do we estimate perceived aspect of uh, affective states uh, expressing voice and language and you know in faces and you know body language and so on thanks to some, you know all the uh, good research by our team members right like you know a lot of you know uh, body of work that emerged and as a part of that you know our lab also has had a a patent on this emotion recognition idea and at the same time uh, the field was also sort of you know developing you know rapidly right this whole ai resurgence that was happening and with this sort of uh, uh, advances in conversational technologies and in general ai human-centered ai so the importance of affect and you know in in understanding and supporting people's experience became important. It was a natural sort of, you know, opportunity to see, hey, can we take some of these ideas and launch it to for, uh, you know, uh, for commercialization? And so I helped with that launch part, but I'm not involved in day-to-day. I know my uh, limitations and, you know, uh, I'm not 
sort of, you know, I don't know how to run sort of businesses and do, that requires dedicated expertise. And so I have colleagues and you know, people who run that, but the idea of uh, what was uh, rewarding was being able to take ideas from the lab to take it out and uh, launch that startup. The second startup, uh, listen, is uh, uh, collaboration. Again, we've had like, you know, several years of collaboration with uh, colleagues, clinic, clinicians and psychologists in uh, on the mental health arena, particular aspect of, you know, psychotherapy, uh, which is like, you know, people use, uh, you know, experts talk to patients and clients to help them uh, with their, uh, the challenges they're facing. So, but psychotherapy, because, you know, it's human-centered, you don't know what works for whom, how, and why. So quality assurance is still sort of an open question. So since it's conversation-based, so using speech, language, processing, you know, can be assessed and provide uh, some insights into, uh, and that was kind of the basis of that work. And again, this was an opportunity because of the scale. And, you know, nowadays, you know, a lot of these happen even tele ways. And so that uh, led to that. Again, I'm, I know I was a co-founder, helped launch, translate ideas, but I'm not involved in day-to-day -day business. There are other uh, uh, things that have been licensed. You know, I would like to highlight two of my students, uh, both are professors now, uh, Theodora Aspari, she's, uh, she's a professor at Texas A&M, and Addie Timmons, they were colleagues you know, when they were PhD students you know, working on the mentorship on uh, wearable sensing and uh, uh, speech and language processing in the wild, you know, so to speak. And their ideas of, you know, trying to do predictive ways of thinking about, say, uh, an upcoming conflict or an upcoming sort of, you know, uh, event of uh, psychological interest, right? Uh, and so that was very exciting. And so they had also together, you know, uh, created a couple of uh, patent applications and they started a startup. And, you know, even though both are professors, they also have a company that has licensed this technology and, you know, they're collaborating on some of the research that, uh, through that company. So that's super exciting. So in addition to sort of, you know, uh, them publishing, they had patents and they also sort of went this extra step of entrepreneurial adventure as well, in addition to being professors. And that's super exciting, you know, to see. Yeah, it's, uh, I think it's super important. It's something that most of us probably uh, never see happening, which is translating the ideas from our, our lab to, to the real world. Um, but leaving that aside for a moment, so you, we've talked a lot about the social impact of your research, but there are also other factors on doing research, right? And we wanted to ask you, so do you ever do research just for the fun of it? And um, as an example of what we mean by this, we found uh, a paper that uh, you wrote, actually a couple of papers about beatboxing. Do you want yes. to tell us a, a little bit about sure. that? Sure. Well, first of all, right, like research should be fun, right? While we want it to be important and the outcome should be sort of, you know, has some meaning to you. That meaning itself, you know, provides you sort of joy and, and, and fun. And, you know, some are more, lighthearted like you know beatboxing at the surface right it seems like oh goodness you know uh, we are studying a beatboxer uh, which is fun right because it's a very novel art form of uh, and um, these artists are making these incredible sounds and we want to know hey what is behind that and so that's how it started but there were some scientific questions behind that as well uh, one we wanted to know the sounds people were creating we wanted to know how are they related to the sounds that are familiar in the world's languages are people using the same vocal instrument to create things that are novel or can it be described from what we know from, you know, uh, linguistics, right, phonetics. Um, so that was first step we uh, did. The other is because these are, uh, people learn to make these, uh, use this vocal instrument to create this, we wanted to see what impact does it have on rehabilitation when this vocal instrument is perturbed because of, say, some injury or illness or surgery, right? For example, for cancer, what they do is they do radical surgery of uh, removing parts of this. And then when patients try to rehabilitate to regain function of swallowing and, and speaking, uh, they're trying to re-exercise this instrument, vocal instrument, that is, you no. Know. And so 
do insights from the learnability aspects you know provide so those were some of the scientific questions but beyond that we really wanted to see you know hey how do how do these beatboxers you know produce and that was so much fun <laughs> when we first saw the vocal dance if you i don't know if you've seen some of the videos they're incredible what uh, humans are capable of doing and we found that they can uh, create things you know both you know using amazing shapes incredible sounds that in fact have not been documented in the world's languages and that that was exciting so of course you know these are also providers you know a way to talk about science and technology to a broader public especially for to young uh, you know students and k through 12 schools uh, you know because music always connects with people and beatboxing right uh, uh, and so that was also fun uh, so a lot of these arts and you know human centered things like you know mental health attract uh, media and that provides us another opportunity for us to talk about the science of you know and technology of speech and other signal processing machine learning that we do and contextualize in ways that connect with society right and that's another opportunity we can sort of uh, contribute and of course you know this beatbox and has been in the news a lot like you know <laughs> television and bbc and all that stuff so that's fun too but the best part in interspace in stockholm my undergraduate student Uh, she's also a beatboxer she was in the same stage as where they do in the bell lectures i hear and beatboxing and showing this mr videos and that, uh, that was hilarious i i thought that was fun <laughs> incredible wow incredible we need to go look for the videos and, and watch them as well uh, there is another completely different topic that we also want to talk to you um so you've been very involved in the scientific commun community right you've participated in iska and ieee and have been editor of different journals including the editor for the computer speech and language journal and also you have a lot of papers and a lot of citations which is really impressive so we're really interested in hearing your opinions on the current publication system and the metrics for evaluating researchers so what's good about the system or there's any space for improvements absolutely very good question i think as scientists and researchers right we stand on the shoulders of people before us right and we learn from what people have done uh, we share our ideas and get feedback from our peers and then hopefully try to see some of our ideas could contribute and impact future researchers right so it's a very community uh, based effort and very social in that sense right because we're all connected so what you are doing as volunteers and being a part of this community is like very commendable and thank you for doing that i think you know i hope more uh, students you know join and because you know uh, this is like a community effort so in terms of publications right these days uh, we are um sharing not only ideas in terms of written papers that describe our ideas and work but also the artifacts that go along with it right whether it's just data tool software so that people it's reproducible it's you know easily usable for the next step many ways right because of the sharing that's happening the volume has also sort of increased a lot and so there are many uh, venues with through which we can share right like conferences are supposed to uh, not just have a paper but also have a way to get feedback right not really through the review process but when you are presenting interacting with colleagues uh, with senior researchers um, getting feedback in a timely way and you know modifying and changing that likewise sort of in archival sort of uh, venues journals and so on provide a rigorous way that is vetted and by peers uh, you know uh, lots of room for improvement right because timely publication provide this value add right because we can put out stuff right these days we have many unreviewed thing things where you can put our idea out but what a community provides like like we are is colleagues you know peers providing thoughtful feedback right so that we can, can jointly improve that every paper we publish in say for example speaker recognition speech recognition says we improve word or rate by this much or speak you know uh, if you add all that up in some nice uh, nonlinear function we should be way ahead right so but we still like not you know we think about it and so there's always room to improve and how to improve uh, these things and you know that has to be contextualized so publication timely publication is important so anything that supports that especially for early career researchers try that you know getting timely feedback uh, is important because they are 
there's lots of practical logistical things that they need to make progress in there and have the opportunity to continue to do research, right? Further, they will say, hey, what have you done, right? Or to show something that has. So I think uh, that is certainly an important thing. Being in the right sort of conferences, being mentored and getting feedback in these conferences is important. I feel that like, you know, the, uh, the pandemic year has been tough. I, I, you know, that element is missing. Even though we have the conferences, personally, I, I feel, you know, this missing element of not being able to walk by posters, learn like things, talk to people, like attend these talks and, you know, and so on. I hope that sort of we, uh, you know, get over that part while we are able to put out a lot of information, this information overload. So how do we curate that with the right sort of uh, peer reviewed and, you know, uh, society, sort of technical society stamped sort of uh, uh, material is the most important thing I feel. Finding people on the conferences, it's, it's important. And, but there's also a lot of comments on whether the reviewer quality scores are in fact predictive of the paper impact or whether the reviewers may be just inconsistent. You know, you can just get lucky with these reviewers. So, you know, it makes us question the system. But then on the other hand, it's also very useful to get feedback and learn from the reviewers. And we just don't want a sea of publications where we cannot navigate, right? It's, it's so hard to keep track of all the papers that come out. And if there was no, review, no peer review, then it would be even more, right? So do you have any comments on this? Absolutely. You are touching upon a very important and a, a, a perennial challenge, right? Because one, there's a huge volume that is happening in, in our fields are very right now so active and dynamic worldwide, which is, that, that's a good news. But at the same time, right, we depend on each other, right, peer review to have quality sort of ways of judging and contextualizing the work. And as you said, right, you know, this variability and, uh, is, uh, is real, right? Uh, and, and also review burden, right? Like there's only so many researchers and, and there's a mismatch between the demand and the people that can, handle it in a uh, consistent way. And sure, so all the challenges you mentioned, uh, Trina, in terms of, you know, sort of inconsistent reviews or, you know, not so thoughtful reviews, they're all, we've all experienced that, right? But overall, I think the system, you know, people are working in a way that they have these multiple layers and checks and balances, like they have technical committees, you know, for example, right, interspeech, right, the area chairs that, you know, uh, they, I've put in a lot of effort, you know, I've been uh, fortunate to have been, you know, part of, uh, uh, you know, organizing interspecies area chair or, you know, technical program chair or general chair. And I see them, I'm always so amazed at the, the contributions every single person puts in the effort, right? And as a result, they all add up. And do, while there's noise in the system, like any human-oriented system, overall, the peer review process works and, and people are continually trying to see how to improve that to get the form of review, the type of review, the number of reviews, and how a paper or an idea makes an impact, right? You know, it, that's a different question, right? Because it depends on the topic area. It might be a really interesting, important result, but it may be something that is of interest to only a few people, in which case it'll just impact those, and that's made it. Some are more sort of broadly sort of, you know, of uh, a tool of interest or that everyone can use. Uh, doesn't uh, mean was one is better than the other. It's just different, right? So some of these metrics are uh, not necessarily sort of perfect either, but overall they kind of give us a feel for sort of, you know, the quality of work and sort of impact people can create. Uh, but I think peer review and uh, uh, community-based efforts are sort of, you know, very central to this research uh, um, sort of mission that we're all engaged in. And that's also a way we educate ourselves, right? By reading and you know, doing that. That's also part of the learning and education. So I feel like, you know, PhD students, for example, are, you know, are colleagues that are very important because they, they have to sort of also participate and contribute to this review process and learn because, you know, not only are they a recipient of the reviews, but they also have to be, because that way, you know, it, they will learn, right? And so if they learn not to, a different way that they want to see the review that they would like to see, right, in what they do, right. I, I found that, like, you know, 
uh, excellent uh, work coming out of you know our students you now early on to get trained uh, because they they put a lot of thoughtful effort thank you uh for the i think it's uh, really always really interesting to to hear the view of someone that's so involved in this sort of process um moving on to something completely different uh we have a question that we've been well dying to ask since the beginning of this conversation sure. so, as we probably have mentioned you're a professor you have you have a family you have almost a thousand publications over 40,000 citations two companies you're also a journal editor and you probably do also sorts of other things that we don't know about so our question is how do you do all of that <laughs> i don't know not very well probably <laughs> i i love like doing all these things right because you know i said like i'm fortunate that i have this opportunity to do some of these things and um and it takes time some of these uh, ideas and effort you know i get excited by new ideas and you know i like to follow up on them and some of them work out some of them don't like you know and uh, i should uh, say that but you know but it's always not for the lack of trying and so i i, I like to do that um and i just you know um i feel that you know our this field is like you know really resonates with me and because of its uh, both scientific and intellectual like opportunities it offers to uh, us but also the connections it provides to sort of you know, making some contribution to society and that kind of you know keeps you excited and going and as i said right this is not a my, my own thing as i said in the beginning this is like you know what are publications are it's a reflection of all the people that i've had just amazing honor of working with my mentors my students and you know and in fact students are my mentors in a way right? i learn a lot from them every day uh, because you know they're always coming up with ideas we have this opportunity to work and interact with them colleagues from different fields you know bring sort of a lot of interesting perspective and knowledge so it's sort of you know, that that's an uh, exciting sort of possibility our field sort of is very nicely positioned for that maybe some other field may not have all these various connections but uh, this kind of you know, uh, has been exciting journey but this exciting journey um I'm sure it has its ups and downs, right? So there are titles and there are awards, uh, but there's, I'm sure, all, all other untold stories. Um, so are there any mistakes or difficult periods that perhaps helped you grow as a person or as a researcher? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, all these CVs and so on only put all the things that you got. Like, you know, you don't know how many rejections and, you know, and all kinds of fronts, challenges, both... Uh, technical intellectual thing ideas that just don't pan out and work and you know they've been sort of useful as a stepping stone for others but it's still sort of challenging uh so just like everyone you know uh you know i i i also go through you know to date you know getting papers rejected uh, proposals like sent back so you know i feel the frustration uh, and say oh my god reviewer 2 is this awful <laughs> and reviewer 2 is always awful right so all those are true and you know that happens and i i i always joke that you know as you just go older you know it's like the rings in a tree that would tell you how many sort of rejections and challenges in this field but this is the field we have chosen in a way right because it's sort of you know it's built for that while exciting things that happen you know and things work out and you know you feel all the best paper award or you know this recognition uh, is is uh, is nice behind that right there's a lot of energy and effort and you know that happens and i and so i'm no different from any other researcher uh, you know uh, out there so as particularly since we are talking to phd students but you know and so this is a part of you know i uh, think there's always going to be Uh, challenges uh, uh, between triumphs and i think you know the challenge is always you know it's a it's a hard thing uh, it's easy to say but hard to practice when i in my role as advisor to sort of these uh, students i say well learning from the challenges and building upon that is important so when we respond to reviews right i always feel that it actually is a very important step for example in trying to build sort of 
how we can learn from that experience. What is that? You know, not beyond just the specific technical aspects, you know, the general meta aspects of that are important. Same thing, right now. I think, uh, I think we all agree that it's uh, super inspiring the way that you can see everything with uh, that much optimism. I, I think we think, I think, and I, I guess all of us think it's really, really cool. Well, Sri, we have learned a lot about you in this conversation, but we feel that there are still uh, unanswered questions. And anticipating this, we prepared a lightning interview consisting of a series of questions that we would like for you to answer quickly and without much thought. Some questions have two scenarios for you to choose from, uh, and others are just open-ended. So, can we begin? Go for it. Okay, so, first question. If you had a warning label, what would it say? Don't touch it. <laughs> <laughs> What's the amazing career path that you left behind? Um, being a doctor. Lassie or soda? <laughs> Lassie. Um, do you prefer work while everyone is already sleeping or work while everyone is still sleeping? Still sleeping. Do you prefer to be an advisor to a very disciplined PhD student or to a very passionate PhD student? Passionate student. Uh, what's your favorite food? Oh, Indian food. Oh, okay, so let me specify. What's your favorite dish? Favorite dish? Uh, dosas. These are crepes, South Indian crepes. What is the best part of a conference? Oh, people just hanging out. Post-conference. <laughs> um, if you were to organize a team-building activity for your lab, which activity would you choose? Well, we often go to a bar and talk. And What's in your letter to Santa? To be able to sort of, you know, uh, move around and travel freely <laughs> this year. If I were to write a letter to Santa, I missed that. So that's it for a lightning interview. And before we wrap up, we have a final question. So if you could choose any person, dead or alive, to have dinner with, who would that person be? Keep in mind that uh, we would get you the funding to have the meal, to pay for the meal. <laughs> Anyone, you know, I, I have, uh, you know, a lot of musicians that uh, I love, you know, that no, no longer alive. And, you know, I, I'm a, a student and, and a uh, musician of South Indian classical uh, variety. And so uh, I'd love to go meet and see, you know, very inspired by some what they've done. Yeah. A bunch of them. Uh, the names may not be familiar to you all, but, you know, I'd love to go see them, have a meal or just meet them. Thank you so much, Sri, for joining us today, for answering all the questions and for the great conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Katrina, Francisco, and Mariana, for uh, inviting me and you know, talking to me. It was so much fun just to think about all these things. I've never thought about this way. And so thanks for the opportunity. And, you know, and you know, thank you for the good, great work that you're doing for ISCA and you know, building this community. And I really uh, appreciate that, what you're all doing. Thank you. Thank and you so good, much. Good luck and best wishes with all, with all your work. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, also, um, also thanks to everyone that's listening to this episode of Speech Pitch. Stay tuned for future episodes. We might interview your favorite speech researcher. Speech Pitch by Iska Sack.